0: You're listening to Splash with Shaleen Bryan. Get ready to be splashed with love and laughter to rehydrate your soul.
1: to Splash. We are so excited, Barbara and I are so glad you're here. Today's show is a little bit different than the past shows, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. Today we're being hit not just with a splash, but with pretty much a tsunami. And it's kind of like reminding us what happens when things in our lives hit us, blindside us, and we're not prepared whatsoever for what's going to happen. And our next guest is not only like family to me, he's like a brother. His story is going to leave you completely rocked. You're going to look in the mirror, and you're going to decide today what you choose to worship, what you choose to follow, what you choose to pursue. Because Jonathan came out of a situation, a, just a rare, rare fluke. They called it the super flu, I think, um, a few years ago. And the comeback that he made makes Rocky movies look, mm-hmm. you know, and that's his favorite that's movie. Right. Remember that right. Um, makes them look pale in comparison to this victory. But Jonathan, for those of you who don't know him, he's called like a Hollywood power player, man. He is the president and CEO of Asylum Entertainment, uh, reality and documentary show producer. He has over 50 series under his belt, airing on ESPN, a amc bravo and the history channel he's also produced traditional narrative series including the kennedys and i am elizabeth smart i loved Which that i love did you see that i did i loved and it. then i yeah. saw the interview after it yes, was so well done it was awesome. um so welcome what we call it's jonathan Koch, but we call him Jonathan!
0: <laughs> it's great to be here uh, awesome uh, i love all this, this you know when i read right this here. about you
1: i'm like oh my gosh i know, I know. this guy i know i i mean I was popping popcorn for the I Am Elizabeth Smart. It was so good and so timely. I think the amount of time that had gone by for her to be at the age she is now, to be able to do that story, was so powerful for me as a mom. Mm. And just the outcome of that story is just epic. But, Jono, we're so glad you joined us in the Splash yes. Zone. Well, so I'm
0: never leaving. <laughs> I'm going to stay right here in the Splash Zone forever. Oh. So,
1: Barb, I yep. thought you, because I met Jonathan yep. obviously through you, turning mm-hmm. at 21 at your mm-hmm. agency, but mm-hmm. tell about this guy. Like, Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I mean, I am sitting among the
2: two most favorite people of my life right now, my 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 BFFs. I mean, Jono came into my life when I was, uh, you know, a mom. My kids were... Oh, t- almost teenagers, some of them were, but he came to our home through a friend, Mark Waters. That's right. We came- I think it was at Easter time, and uh, yes. I always had people over at <laughs> it Easter. It was Easter. It was Easter. <laughs> and um, uh, Jono came in, and Mark uh, introduced him, and I was
1: this handsome... with my mom. Yes, you were with your mom. Yeah, that's right. I do remember. This story just hits me because I remember the day I found out about it. But for our listeners, Jonathan's story, the fight, began back in January of 2015 when he was heading to Washington, D.C. for a conference for an unscripted television producers event. What was that event
0: called? It's called Real Screen. Yeah, Real Screen. It's It's like like a big deal. Yeah, it's like speed dating for um, producers and networks, like buyers and sellers. Every 15 minutes, you switch networks and pitch, and, Mm -hmm. and then at the end of the day, everybody loses their mind.
1: Oh, I would yeah. have so much fun it's at that. Amazing. It's amazing. Oh, an, my it's God. The, It is
0: the Super Bowl of unscripted okay. television. Yeah. So
1: that's where he was headed. Yeah. And you felt funny. And I'm going to kind of, you end up hopping in, did you hop in an Uber or a cab or what did you do?
0: Um, I hopped in a cab. Yeah. I was pitching the Discovery Channel and I saw three of the executive who I was pitching to.
1: And so you I don't could, drink.
0: Right, So that was a problem. And I was trying to pitch to the one in the middle because that seemed like the most likely the one. <laughs> yeah. But then, um, you know, on the way out that I had to cut that meeting short and on the way out, I couldn't pick up my feet. So I thought this isn't something I can deal with on my own anymore. I think you know that, mm-hmm. you know, when you get in those situations, you know, this is for real. Right. Um, so I jumped in a cab and I said, please take me to the closest hospital, which thankfully was GW. Yeah. George, mm-hmm. Washington, George University Washington
1: University Hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what was crazy for me when I remember you telling me the story was the doctors basically said you had a 10% chance to live and told you, call everyone you know, call all your loved ones, because I mean, most of them are here in Los Angeles, because you might just have 24 hours to live. And the most important person in your life, I know who this is, because she graduated with my daughter in 2016, um, is Ariana. And yet you did not text her. No. So here the doctors say you have a 10% chance to live. Text everyone you love. And what do you do?
0: Well, Dr. Lynn Abel, who was my mortal enemy at the time, but also the woman who saved my life. And she was a straight up scientist. Like there was no hand holding, there was no nothing. But I did not have any oxygen left in my brain. And I didn't understand anything. I could not understand one thing you know momentarily i could regain myself but most of the time i couldn't understand anything and i was behaving badly and i (laughs) i told her you know i I wanted just a little bit of a drink of water because i literally was dying of thirst i i was i couldn't breathe i was so thirsty and she said well you're not getting any and i was like listen i've been a decision maker in my life since i'm 11 years old (laughs) i'm gonna leave I'm going to leave. I'm going to go somewhere else where they'll treat me differently than this. And she said, you're probably going to die tonight. And I think she did it mostly to get my attention, but it was also true. And so I sat down. She got my attention. And she said, you know, you need, to, you need to contact your family. And, of course, Jennifer, my wife, knew. But I chose not to contact Ariana, my daughter, who was 15 at the time. Right. And the reason I chose not to is, is that... Um, You know, there are no unspoken words between me and Ariana. She knows exactly how I feel. She knows exactly what to do. We've had an entire lifetime of the fabric of our relationship being in support of everything that she and I believe in about her future and how she should conduct herself and being the masterpiece of a human being that I really believe that she is. And um, I thought that if I contacted her, that would be for me. That would be the idea that I needed to hear her voice one more time because there was no reason for me to call her and tell her I might die tonight. Because oh if I did die, she was gonna to have to deal with that reality anyway. Right? And so my relationship with her is about her, not about me. And I refused to call her because well, for two reasons. One is is that she doesn't need to hear it twice. If I Mm-hmm. die, she will know exactly what to do and she will suffer, you know, a fate that daughters should not have to, which is to grow up without their fathers. But also I found in that moment I refound, I rediscovered in that moment the strength to live, not to die. Because for yourself, the limitations that a person has just if they're consumed with themselves that's a totally different capacity than it is if you reach outside yourself to the people that you love and you honor and you cherish and, you know, certainly, you know, your children. Mm -hmm. And I found an incredible reservoir of strength in making sure that I was committed not to die for her. And that really led the charge of the focus that I immediately got, like... I am going to fight through this. I'm going to give it every single thing I have. And if I have one breath left in me, then, you know, for her, I will keep going.
1: And at the time, Jennifer was your girlfriend. So she hopped on a plane. You did contact her. Yes. And she was on a plane. But by the time she got to D.C., they had put you in a coma. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think I I didn't miss by much. I had tried to, but... (laughs) I tried to stay awake, um, you know, but things were going haywire very quickly. And I had, you know, lung failure, heart failure, kidney failure, liver failure, you know, there really wasn't much left that was working. But at a certain point, I was so frustrated, apparently, I don't remember much of this, it's all told to me, but I got up and I tore everything out of my arms. And Jennifer's father lives in Pennsylvania, and he had come to the hospital and... Uh, he tried to. I told him I was leaving. Apparently, and he tried to stop me. But he's not my size, <gasps> and so I picked him up and I threw him on the floor. And oh he Christ. held on to my foot oh. and started yelling for you know the nurses, mm-hmm. which was hilarious to hear him tell it because he was like, "We're in Washington," and I'm screaming for Them and I imagine like three of the Washington Redskins are gonna come in here and take care of this, but they sent in three tiny nurses, and he's like, Hey, this isn't gonna help. But they had a big needle, and um, that was the That's end of sedated that. Sedated you, yeah, that was the end of that. So, and what's think,
1: crazy is here, your organs are all failing. I mean, they tell you when you got sick here before you got on the plane because you weren't feeling good when you were leaving LA right. that mm-hmm. you had some super flu. I remember that super flu going around, everyone was getting you know. Like the, it re- it really wasn't, sh- it's it, not a it wasn't a superflu. Yeah, I know, yeah. but I remember hearing a rumor that they like called a superflu, gave you a shot of morphine, and it stuck you on a plane. We're like, go That's ahead. Right. There's nothing wrong yeah. with you. There was nothing wrong. That's what they said here in L.A. Right? They go, there's nothing wrong, and gave you a shot of morphine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I in my mind in that morning when I woke up and I said to Jennifer, you know, can you please get me cleaned up and get me out of here because I have to go to Washington. My whole team oh, has gosh. been counting on me, and they've been up three days straight working on these pitches for you know, being able to go to the conference and, you know, I don't think it's ever happened to me before in my life, but after I got showered and I laid down on the floor and I said, I can't, I just can't move. I can't do it. I feel like I've been hit by a truck. And when I went to the hospital here, um, they just gave me two flu tests, a bag of saline, And for some reason, a shot of morphine. But since I don't drink or smoke or do drugs or anything, like, I was stoned out of my mind. (laughs) And I was so happy. I was, like, rolling around the ER, entertaining the troops, like, you know. (laughs) So I think that they said, you know,
2: you seem fine.
0: Um, So they let me go. And I immediately called my assistant and said, get me on a plane. Let's go. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that that happened, actually, because... I've heard it more than once, and I know it's true that if I had been here in LA, I would have died, for yeah. sure. The yeah. Washington doctor is that particular unit, um, their trauma capacity at GW Hospital, which is where my my mom had cancer. You know, before uh, she died at about fifty three, mm-hmm. and she was treated at GW. I was familiar with that hospital because she lived out there. And they're just an incredible trauma hospital. And if I had not run into Dr. Lynn Abel and her husband, Dr. Bruce Abel and you know Dr. Senef, and like the people that were there who just refused to give up on me. And since that time, they've told me we really had very, almost no interest in trying to treat you because wow. there was really no reason to treat you. And um, I think that Jennifer, you know, she encouraged them. She said, "You don't know what he is capable of. Like, just right. treat him, mm-hmm. and we'll see if you know um, something." And they didn't really
2: know what they were treating. No, they—they they were trying everything.
0: Yeah, they. I mean, they. I had about thirty different bags of medication hanging at one point. It literally was just like we might as well try everything because he's going to die anyway. But there was <sighs> a there was an intern that was in the elevator. I guess is what I heard. That was uh, said, "Hey, maybe this is this HLH thing, which is a autoimmune mm-hmm. disorder. and um, dr the Dr. Sanoff, who was the lead at that time, said, I don't have that much familiarity with it. It's a one in twenty million you know kind yeah. of a thing, and mostly affects children, and also most people don't survive. So there is no research. there's no testing, there's no nothing. It's a process of elimination. But they said, You know, he has five of the seven markers." Let's switch the entire regimen up, go to chemotherapy, Go, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy steroids. And almost, you know, as soon as I started doing that, I started to improve a little bit.
1: Because your body was in septic shock, and that's why the blood from your hands and your feet were going to keep your heart pumping, correct? Or your organs going? Yeah,
0: your, your body um, naturally shunts your blood, almost if you had frostbite. Mm-hmm. So it keeps your heart alive and it keeps your brain alive. Um, and then it starts to kill you slowly from the outside in because those are not the necessities. Those are the, you know, hands and feet are the want-tos, not the have-tos, you know? So, um, yeah. So mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty incredible that that happened, actually.
1: All right. Tell me what you mean by that. That, that here, your hands are, they literally got mummified.
0: Yeah. Well, because
1: it was going to keep you alive. And here, you were like the epitome of health. If I was to list my friends who were super healthy don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs, work out, eat clean, um, care for others. I mean, you use all your, the whole pie chart, it'd be you.
0: You know, I'm very grateful for what happened. I, you know, I've never felt stronger, happier more clear-headed. I've never felt anything even close to the purpose that I feel now. And if you asked me, would I change it? I would not. I mean, it's painful. Don't get me wrong. It's not fun. Physically, it's not fun, but emotionally and mentally, and from the standpoint of what drives me in my life, um, there is no way you get here without this. And I do think that a lot of what I've noticed is is that because I'm out speaking now and the reason why people who have had great trauma go out and speak is almost like being a parent, right? Like you want to give people the experience that you've had so that they don't have to go through the same things that you have or that they have the advantage of your experiences. And for everybody that's out there speaking who understands that through you know, great tragedy comes great triumph, right? Like, everybody's just trying to say, hey, you don't have to wait until something like this happens to you to gain this altitude, to gain this clarity and this purpose in your life, you know, to understand things a little differently than, you know, maybe we all do as we're going through a process. So yeah, I mean, at the hospital, it was very tough. It was certainly very hard on, you know, the people that I love and that love me and, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. But at the same time, if you get to, if you're fortunate enough to come through the other side of it, it's an incredible experience.
1: Mm. I remember you sharing a story with me when you were in a coma Mm. and that you felt like you were in hell. And you said, every person, Shalene, I had ever done anything wrong to, like everyone down there just hated me. Like they hated me and they were telling me all these things that I had done wrong. But then I could hear, I could hear prayers from Ariana, from my daughter, from you, from Barbara. I could hear people praying for me. Do you remember telling me this?
0: I do remember telling you that. It's not exactly how I... Well, um... tell
1: me, because remind me how you said it, because it was so powerful. I was calling you and we were speaking and I'm like, I'm praying. You're like, Shaleen, you don't understand... What just happened to me last night
0: well you know certainly i think one of the things that's changed about my perception and perspective on things is that you look at people who are in comas and you think well at least they're resting right well, that's
1: what i always thought
0: yeah well it isn't just me i mean i've read about them now and i understand things a little differently but you know those two and a half weeks were the worst the worst days of my life not even close. They were the worst days of my life. And, you know, sitting here, speaking with you guys today, talking with you is exactly the same level of memory that I have about that. And it will be, it isn't like I had a dream. And, you know, your mind is an incredibly, you know, everybody knows your mind is powerful, but I don't think that, you know, the realities that your mind can create the way in which it stores its memories can be altered. You know, when you're in a state like that, being in a coma, but immediately, um, as far as I know it, immediately, when I went into the coma, I was being held captive on a bench a wooden bench in a in a maryland farmhouse behind a curtain with a family who had these giant faces and jagged teeth and they would not talk to me they wouldn't answer any of my questions or speak to me at all they would only speak about me and i got this very um specific sense that there was somebody there before me and that there would be somebody there after me and then every morning they would bring in a milk crate and in the milk crate there were snakes, poisonous snakes, and they would lay them on me. And I remember, this was the most frightening part of it, that I would remember trying to be perfectly still because I had always heard that if you don't make any movements, that you know they're not trying to hurt you if you're not trying to hurt mm-hmm. them. Um, but I would try to lay perfectly still, and then some horrible pain would come, and I would fight it to the brink of... You know, my capacity to fight it. And then I would flinch and they would just start biting me everywhere and biting me on the face and on the neck and on the chest and just, you know, the torture of it all. Because after they would uh, finish, they would take the snakes away and then they'd give me one day. And over that one day period, I would get better, but a little less better than I was the day before. But I would heal. And then Mm -hmm. we would do it all over again. And they were always different kinds of snakes and they were always every day it was the same thing. And um, as I was actually getting closer to dying in real life, I was getting closer to dying, you know, laying on that bench. And I remember thinking I had one piece of twine that was just holding me down. I thought, I'm so strong. Like, how is it that this one piece of twine is holding me down, but I can't move? And um, so as I got closer to that, to the end I remember being there when my mom died and I remember kind of breathing that she was doing very shallow, you know, breathing sporadic. And that's what was happening to me. And I remember, I thought I had 11 breaths left. And so, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know, I only have 11 left. I have to make the most of them and just take in as little oxygen as possible so that I don't waste anything. and then as soon as I started to think that, I was transported into a room, which I don't know what else to say about it, but it was a purgatory room. And Maybe this is the part that you remember, okay. um, is, is that in that room, there was absolutely nothing. There was no temperature, no humidity, no people, no vo- nothing. It was completely empty. It was a concrete floor. There was a drain in the middle, almost like a shower drain in the middle of it. And there was a door on the other side of it. And I was just walking towards it. And, um, I could feel everybody who loved and hated me.
1: All right. I
0: I mean, my perception of that, right? right. Like I could feel everybody. It was like my whole life was in that room, but yet there was nothing in that room. And as I crossed over the drain, I, you know, I heard a voice, a very deep men's voice, which I don't recognize. I didn't recognize as my own or even the voices I make up when I'm reading a book, you know, like I, it wasn't that voice. And, um, The voice said, you know, do you want to keep doing what you're doing? And of course I answered, no, who would want to keep doing that? Like that that was the easiest answer in the world. But whether the voice was my voice or somebody bedside or God or the universe, they knew that I did not understand the question. And so the question was posed to me as, if you do decide that you want to live, it will be the most painful, vicious fight of your life every day for the rest of your life. But that I understood, that I immediately agreed to, because I had already said long ago, like, if whatever I have to endure to be there for my daughter, I will endure it. And so I said yes. And part of what I think you remember from the conversation was is that during this whole episode... I kept feeling this little I still feel it now actually on the on my right tricep I felt just this hand just like it wasn't grabbing me. It was just mm. nudging me, lifting me, right? And I kept feeling that and I kept feeling it all the time. And certainly in the moment when I had to make the decision, I felt it more than anything. And, you know, um I got transported through this very, very dark, grimy water after I had said yes and transported to the surface where it was obviously clean and happier and came out of my coma at that time. And all the way for the next number of months, not even a year, I was shocked at how many people said, we were lifting you up. We were lifting you up. Mm-hmm. And every time they said it, without any you know idea of how to connect it, every time they said it, I immediately thought of that feeling on my tricep because it was so obvious to me that when I got out these 405 emails that were put together for me from people who had been at the conference who you always think that you have relationships because everyone who knows me knows my relationships are more important to me than my business, right? like But I yeah. don't know if those friendships exist because of business or if they're real friendships because they're in that world. But 405 of those people at that conference wrote me and 100 of them were like, Hey, I heard you were sick. I hope you get better. But, you know, (laughs) but 300 of them were so heartfelt. And of those, probably Mm. 200 of them said, I'm lifting you up. And like, and then I get back to here. And of course, all of you and, you Mm. know, the love that I you know, got here and I go to Oaks Christian where, you know, Ariana went to school and I walk in for the father daughter dance, mm. you know. Which I missed, you
1: never missed, by the way. I missed
0: one. I missed one. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I shouldn't have been there at the one I was. <laughs> but, mm. you know, I got there and as soon as I walked in the door, all of these men who I don't know mm. came up and surrounded me mm-hmm. and they started hugging each other and me and telling me that they had been lifting me up. I mean, it just was this constant theme. And, you know, it was, it's undeniable to me that the power of those prayers were, you know, uh, a big part of my experience and, you know, probably helped me get through there, you know, much, much better than I could have ever gotten there myself and if I could have even done it at all.
1: Mm. Sounds like the power of the Holy Spirit to me. Totally. Totally. Jono, for our listeners, tell them what had to happen physically to your body and the gift that was given to you because of someone else's life.
0: Mm. Well, um, I did because of the nature of sepsis, right, which kills you from the ends of your toes and fingers inward. um, I did have amputations on all four of my limbs. I lost my right foot. Uh, below the knee amputation. I lost all of the toes on my left foot. I lost all the half of the fingers. I have all of my fingers. They're just half as long on my right hand. And um, (laughs) I've never been able to figure out how to say that. And and, uh, I lost, you know, my left hand entirely. Um, So that was the life I led for quite a long time. But I think that what happened in the hospital in Washington was so incredibly epic for all of us because as soon as I woke up you know I started doing what I really feel which is ignoring my own limitations and reaching out to all of those people that were you know helping me the doctors and the nurses and you know everybody who was rooting for me and finding strength in all of them when I was a kid um when the space shuttle blew up in 1986 yeah. I was in college And I watched it live and I couldn't make peace with it. I could not make peace with it. When something like that happens, it means so much to all of us. But for me, the hole just never would close. So from that day forward, every day that I've been capable of doing it, including today, I've done seven pushups for the astronauts who died in the space shuttle that day. And the reason I say that is, is because I'm the one that got the benefit of it, right? I'm the one that got stronger. I'm the one that got stronger, but I did not do it for me. I did it for them. I still do it for them, but I am the one that, you know, got stronger. And, you know, when we started this incredible journey together in Washington with all these doctors, I mean, it it was just, it is a message to everybody, right? Like the people that you encounter in your life are oftentimes... You know, some are have tos and some are want tos, right? Like some have to be around you because it's their job, but some want to be around you because they love their job and they love what they do. And Mm -hmm. there were a big group of doctors and practitioners in Washington that we all just mounted a charge like no other to, you know, to reclaim a life. And part of what happened when I went back to see them. When we did the 2020, we went back to see the doctors and I walked in and I had promised them that one day I would walk back in that (laughs) hospital in a suit and, you know, that they could see me as I was and, you know, not um, the way they had seen me. And um, even though it wasn't perfect, you know, I, I walked back in there and I was very shocked because I thought there'd be like three people there and maybe a sandwich. I don't know like what was gonna happen. (laughs) And uh, there were, you know, 60 some people there and most of whom I didn't recognize because I was in a coma most of the time that they interacted with me. Jennifer knew them all, um, but they started cheering for me and I was Uh just literally frozen stiff because I thought I I came there for them to say thank you to them. I don't Mm. under, I just totally overwhelmed in a bad way that way and then It just hit me in a second, which I can see my face change when I see it on film, that I really wasn't there to say thank you to them for saving my life. I was really there to show them the life that they saved, right? Mm. Because that's what they need to keep going forward. They need Mm. to see what their life work is about. Not that my life in and of itself was that important. But as we continue to grow together and they started Broaching the idea that these amputations were going to take place, and um, you know the the strength that they all had to face that, you know, along with me and not isolate me, and those feelings that you could make you feel like you were drowning. Um, there became like this shining light about it, which is, what do you think about a hand transplant? And <sighs> um
1: and when i hear that i think of the six million dollar man growing up <laughs> yeah, watching that yeah, tv yeah, show right. yeah. yeah i think we can rebuild him we have the yeah. technology i mean yeah. like when you first said that to me i'm like like a real hand john No, it's it's probably one of those ones we see like, <laughs> like amy purdy on dancing with mm-hmm. the stars like her legs and like the she's just yeah and she's sort. just an athlete like you and she's in great shape so like you get in a bionic leg i totally get it but you're talking like someone else's hand yeah and it's gonna work and you're like yeah like but i have to and that fight you said to me and i think you even said on 2020 was like even tougher than going through
0: yeah the coma. Well, i think the way i've thought about it is is that you know as i'm staring yeah, at your I know, hand right. so your i think it's just
2: amazing i wish you guys could see this i remember when i first saw it you know it was a little stiff and everything are you moving every finger your yeah you thumb, just flipped me off it was like so easy
0: No, I I have a lot of work to do, but I I think, you know, the reason I brought up those other stories is is that, you know, resilience is not a moment, right? Resilience is an ongoing, never-ending process. And just when you think Mm. that you have endured the most you ever will, here comes something else. Mm. And it's the growth that you get together, right? Like that team and the fact that, you know, I am wearing, you know... um, a hand that wasn't mine originally. And like the astronauts, you know, I honor this gentleman who I'm meeting his uh, family in about 30 <gasps> days. That was a, when, when? when? In you mean? like 30 days, I think. What? Yeah. We can go on remote. We should go. We should splash <laughs> on <Wow>. over. That <laughs> um, was a question okay, I was. Wanted. I know. Yeah. we were
1: dying to know if you met
0: the donor's family. I mean, they family. obviously know a lot about me because I've done, you know, a lot of um, media about it, but that's all part of it, right? Is that I'm supposed to make sure that I do everything right because this hand isn't really about me. This hand is, you know, I'm 5%. I'm the I'm the test pilot. There have been 80 of these in the world, but mine's the first one that's ever been done like this. And um if it can work and it works well and we get to show it off in the right way that soldiers will start to, mm. you know, have the opportunities and, you know, other people will get it. So there's a there's a tremendous, you know, team around it there are probably three or four hundred people who made it happen in the first place um the donor obviously being the most important one but moving forward you know it's all of us right like I'm I'm just as compliant as I can be I am I follow directions I do everything I'm supposed to do I'm where I'm supposed to be every minute of the day but when we walked when we walked in when we rolled into (laughs) the UCLA um we met Dr. Azari who's the you know He's uh, just an incredible human being in just every way, um, not the least of which is his capacity as a surgeon. But we were excited about it. We thought. I only asked him one thing when I left the hospital, which is, please don't let me leave here like Mr. Potato Head. Like I don't <laughs> want that. I don't. I don't want to have to. You know. But of course, that is exactly what happened. But um, but part of the recovery of this was. Yeah, it's possible. You have to go through an incredible gauntlet, you know, to get to the point where you're even going to be able to get a hand transplant, qualify for it and I'm well, that, be fit
1: enough, right. be strong enough, have the mental toughness, mental be right. able to, to that. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's crazy. Get off pain meds, be able to walk. wanted you to was, walk? Yeah,
0: the walking thing was the biggest thing, but you know, Jennifer and I were so I mean, we're, you know, the way we are, it was just yeah. like, You're okay, all what do we have to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, do you have a hand here? Do we pick one out as a case? <laughs> like, you know, like we didn't know. Like, And he's looking at me like, you are a monkey. <laughs> so, and he's told me since, like, I never in a million years thought you were going to make it, you know, like, wow. I, he, but mm-hmm. he said to me before, again, like there are these moments when people say things to you that just change your perspective just enough for you to understand the task at hand. And he said to me, We're not going to even talk about this ever again until you can walk. And Meaning
1: getting the hand transplant. Yeah, we're not
0: going to talk about it until you can walk. And I wasn't close to walking. I was Mm -hmm. fifty pounds lighter than my you know, I had no hair. I you know, not that you need hair to walk around, I guess. But um
1: You want to look good when you walk yeah. in, though. You know yeah, what I mean? I'm like, hey, just walk around. Yeah, um, and you have a
0: full head of hair, yeah. so yeah. Um, but you know, there was a lot of recovery to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and those kinds of opportunities. You know, I'm not. I never have been goal oriented, right? Like, I, I find goals to be stifling. Like, if somebody said to me, "Hey, I want to lose ten pounds," I'm like, "Well, every day that you haven't lost ten pounds is kind of a disappointment." And then the day that you do lose ten pounds, then what? Right. So my life has really been purposeful. Put one foot in front of the other. Do the things you're supposed to do, the right things, the things you feel in that moment are the right direction. And so it was really an absolute match for me to be purposeful about walking and being healthy and. You know, I worked out with my trainer know. every day and I was on a 270 milligrams of morphine. I fall asleep while we were working out. And he'd wait. And mm-hmm. he would wait. He was so great. Well, he would wake me up. I mean, yeah. he, he says he would wait, but he would <laughs> he would shake me awake. But, you know, my hands and feet were black, like mm-hmm. they were dead I and I was still training and I was still and I found such, you know, People were saying, well, you need to be careful about that. I'm like, this is everything. To me, you know, the ability to f- stand up and face those demons head on. Look, I'm straight in the face and say, not today. You know, that was where I got the strength to stand up and walk, right? Like, you know, w- without that commitment of the purpose of it all, I don't know if this would have gone exactly the same way. I, Dr. Sari said, you need to walk. I came home, I told Scott, you know, if we can't walk the first day they put a prosthetic on me, we have not accomplished what our purpose is. Because you'd
1: been training so hard.
0: Yeah. I mean, we when Jennifer and everybody would leave the house, Scott would get me out of my wheelchair and we'd climb the steps on my knees and elbows for speed, you know, like racing up and down the steps. <laughs> and I wouldn't have gotten caught except for I accidentally hit one of my so-called fingers, and it's swelled up like the size That's of my right. head. But, um, but, you know, it was the purpose of being able to walk, you know, mm-hmm. to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as far as I have heard, Ryan, my prosthetist, who's amazing, you know, he said it's the first time in 25 years he's ever seen anybody walk the first day. And that doesn't mean anything to me that it was the first time. It just means something to me that we put our purpose, you know... One day at a time, it, we didn't know. Like, if it was possible, it's, it doesn't matter. Just do the right things every single day. And when the time comes that you're tested, you'll find out the answer, right? But mm. it's never ending. It does not, even today, it's like a cat falling off a roof, right? I'm just I'm trying to get my claws in anywhere I can. And on days when things are not so great, you know, I slide down.
2: I have a question for you. Yes, go ahead, Barbara. Thank you. (laughs) Um, When your hands were turning black Mm -hmm. and green, and I mean, how I saw them, you didn't have them removed right away. I remember you sharing with me, or Mm -hmm. I heard that you waited and you waited. I mean, most of us, we would just take what the doctors would come in and say, like, you know, these need to go. They're 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 killing you, but you didn't. What was it that made you wait? What did you see or or why did you make those decisions?
0: Part of what helps you is an understanding of yourself, what it is that there wasn't real danger in having my hands that Mm -hmm. way. If they had started to be a problem in any way, if they had gotten infected, they would have taken them off, regardless of what I would have said. But we had a plan, and just so everybody, you know, can really take this in, they told me that this process was going to take both of my arms to my shoulders, that it was going to take both of my legs to my hips, and it was going to take my nose and my ears.
1: What? I never heard this. That's what I
0: was told, right away. And no, it isn't, you know. And so, if you allow everybody to be reactive to what they think is true, and not give yourself the chance for, you know, miracles for God, yeah, and for you know, the the uh, incredible things that are really possible, you know, then I would probably be sitting here. I, I have indications in fact over here on my neck on the back of my neck you can see like the same scars that are on my hands um because it the black just went all over me but it wasn't really dead yet Mm. and you know the places that were dead until they absolutely declared i said no so
1: wow. And wasn't that kind of a bit of a miracle for the hand transplant because then all the nerves were right down there at your wrist so you could get feeling back? Did, did you share that with me or did I see that on the 2020? 2020...
0: Well, I think Dr. Azari's thesis, is plan, plan was okay. that, In the beginning that was... when they did actually take off my necrotic hand, they left my wrist there, which ultimately would end up leaving, but right. they tied everything on the top, all my nerves and tendons and muscles. And my partnership with Dr. Rosari was exactly that. He said, I need you to do your, I called them hand Kegels, but really that's what it was. Like inside, I didn't actually have a hand, but I could feel my fingers inside of my wrist. And so really? I flexed them all day long and I made sure that they were strong. And the reason why I was able to move my thumb the first day, first minute I woke mm. up was because I kept everything so strong and supple and wow. he did his thing. I did mine and we have always been good partners. So, mm. you know, that's why it worked out that way. So
1: you come out of that hand transplant and there is a picture of you. you yeah. Thumbs up. Literally, it was
0: Jennifer's birthday.
1: Jennifer's birthday. Yeah. You got to do it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I remember a video you text me of you grabbing a tennis ball and I just wept because for me and my faith, you are just an absolute masterpiece miracle from God. He is just showing his glory off in you every single day. And this encouragement and this strength and the guy who died his expiration date to be able to give you this, it all is a glory to God Mm -hmm. because he is not finished with your story. And he was the one lifting you out of that miry pit and setting your feet back on a rock because he knows the race that he has for you to run. And it's like, it is such, I'm like about to cry. It is so crazy. The will and the way he, he made you so that you would be so unique, Jono, that you would be able to have this mental toughness and this will to survive and this compassion and love and even obeying. I mean, I love what the doctor at George Washington said. You asked her one question probably the whole time you were there. Remember the question? You said, Why did, I'm just wondering what has happened to me. Like I've been so healthy. Like I followed all the rules. I ate clean. I worked out. Uh-huh. And I love what she said to you. She said, you didn't. You didn't stay healthy to prevent this from happening. You were healthy so that you could survive it. Mm-hmm. It's like crazy.
0: Well, I think you know that
1: cuz our body is a temple. Like like you you kept your temple in order and then when when crap happens cuz tsunamis are going to hit us all. Everyone listening has stuff happening. You were able to rise up from under from, from that the darkest pit I've ever known anybody personally to come out of. I mean, your attitude. You're, I mean, that's just Christ. I mean, that that is just God's sovereignty over your life. It is so crazy to me that you did not die. And even when I left the house, seeing your mummified hands, like I saw in a National Enquirer. I mean, uh, you know those books, those uh, dictionaries, because there weren't. What do they give you? Encyclopedias. Encyclopedia. That was the first time I ever saw a mummified <laughs> hand. The word is, sorry, I'm like, can I Google that? Yeah. Oh, no, it wasn't around then. I can't <laughs> yelp it either. Um, I, I left and I was like, oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, it's going to take over his whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why are those still on? And Bryce goes, God's got this, Shalene. Just mm-hmm. hold on. He did, he's going to be the hero of this story, Jono. What has happened with your faith through this?
0: Well, I think it, that story I told a little earlier, right? I mean, I've always been surrounded by all of you and, you know... I yeah, mean, if we could lift you into heaven, we would, John I mean, I I mean just- I, you know, um, I'm still making sense of just a lot of what I saw, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that people always ask me, like all of my friends who came up to the house, like it was literally like a parade. And it yeah. still is, actually. It's like yeah. a parade of people. And the one question everybody always ask me in one form or another is what do you know that I don't know? Right. You know, and, um, you know, I think up until the point, like about being a human being, about what you're capable of, what your spirit can do, you know, you know, um, one of the major things in my life is the difference between, you know, what you're able to do and what you're capable of doing, right? That is that there's a gigantic reservoir of strength that goes beyond, what you think you are able to do, what you've seen and what you've experienced, right? What your ceiling is. There are limitations to being a human and that those limitations can be superseded and you do things that other people look at and say, I don't know if I could do that. Mm. But when they have faith, mm. they can do... You, you can't even imagine the things that you can do. And my faith in people and my faith in the universe and my faith in god and my like they all literally had to come together in one moment because i was not by my words but by the doctors on my last breath and i never thought to myself that my life was so important that all the everything should happen around what happened i think what happened is a story for all of us right i think you know I'm, i'm like you said i'm just kind of uh subject and the mouthpiece for all of this. But, you know, the inspiration and motivation to accomplish something is fine. But to actually fulfill your entire capacity as a human being to grow as big and strong in your faith as you can and big and strong in your relationships to be for other people, that has reached a level I can't even, I mean, I I just can't wait every day to find out how whatever happened to me can be useful for other people and useful in um, just the idea that, it you know, we're all in this together and it's something much bigger, right? Like, the, that, to me, it's not as defined as the way you talk about your faith, right? That for me, I'm still figuring a lot of things out, but I know one thing for sure is that everything, all of the prayer, like, that is absolutely fact it's fact you know and I don't know that I would have known that Mm. you know before all this happened so it's part of the journey. I'm not I'm not finished with my journey by a long shot. But.
1: And we're not finished
0: praying mm-hmm. for you. Oh, I know. You know, I you know, that. know. <laughs> I if me, I know.
1: could have baptized you in the After, backyard yeah. today, I would have. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, Oh, no, seriously. I mean, your story has God's fingerprints all over it. And it's just remarkable. But I love your honesty mm-hmm. um, about where you are in your journey. I think there are people right now that are they seem that things are hopeless. You know, their jobs, they're they're in the middle of a divorce, they're burying a child. There's just things that happen in our life that are tsunamis. And in order to build that strength, for I know for Barbara and I, and for some people listening and maybe not, I mean, that, like, God has to be my rear guard. Like, he goes before me, he goes behind me. Like, this story, it's just, he's the hero of your story for me. And when I look at you, it just reminds me how good our God is and that He is so faithful, no matter what season we're in, in our faith, no matter what journey we're at, if we're not quite there yet, or if we're still searching or trying to figure it out. But man, I mean, I feel like he lit you up like the 4th of July.
0: I mean, there's, there's certainly, I mean,
1: you are like chosen. I mean, like he just put his hands on you and it's like, I'm going, I can't sit here and do this interview. And go, No, 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 that was God. Like that was totally a miracle from the Lord that he lifted you out of that pit of those two weeks. And he's like, no, no, I'm not done with you. See, all of our lives are a vapor. We're all just a moment from exiting here. Forget my hands. I'm ready to leave. Like I i don't know when that expiration date is, but until it is, I'm supposed to be fixing my eyes on things to come, not on earthly things. And it's so true. What we put into others is the only thing we can take with us. It's mm-hmm. really, First, it's an,
0: an, it's just I can't even really explain it. I'm rarely at a loss for words, but I mean, this journey, like this thing is, it's almost like the pain, it it has to be part of it, right? Like you have to, the physical pain that I have every single day and believe me, you know, having to tie your shoes 10 times, but not, but getting to tie your shoes 10 times, right? It's the same thing, you know, and I, and, um, you know, I remember we were in the gym with Ariana, she was getting prepared to go play, you know, college athletics, which was different than playing as I'm sure it was for Brooke, right? Mm -hmm, And Ariana was uh, lifting that giant tire, you know, flipping Mm -hmm. it over at the gym. And I could see on her face that her eyes were starting to go dim, that she was fatiguing, Mm -hmm. exhausted, like just could not find it in herself. And I put my hand on the tire and I said, honey, this one right here, right now. I want you to do this one for how much you love me. Do this right now for how much you love me. And she picked up that tire and threw it halfway across the gym. And I said, that is what you get. Now you take that and you multiply it by your faith, and, like, right? that's just one relationship, an important one, but it's the all of us, like, the humanity of all of it. It's just incredible what you're able to accomplish, what you're capable of accomplishing. And I think that um, point that you made about what Dr. Abel said to me about, you know, when I asked her the question, because she said to me, Jonathan, you changed the way in which I feel about being a doctor. You know, and this was a woman that we did not have a good go of it. In the early part of our time together. And, you know, she was crying. I didn't know she had tears because she was a little bit harsh Mm -hmm. at the beginning. And I was crying. And I, of course, wanted to say all of those things to her, too, because I appreciate and respect so much, you know, that the fact that they were willing to rally and fight and do things that were uncomfortable for them to try you know, all these things. But what really came by her comment of I didn't do all those things so it wouldn't happen. I did all those things so I would survive and nobody else would have is the message that to me has always been clear, which is don't do the bare minimum, right? Like run as far away from the bear as you can. Get as big in your faith as you can. Be as fit Mm. as you can. Like do be as nice to people and as kind to people as you can. Run as far away from the bear as you can because that time gives you the opportunity to make better decisions right Mm. if you're and for a case like mine when the bear was gigantic and was on me in a second it was every single thing that i've ever done in my life that made me just far enough away to have time to escape right Mm. and you know to invest myself on all those things so Mm. um, we are
1: so honored and happy and encouraged and inspired to have you in the splash zone today thank you for sharing thank you you. we love you love you and until next time everyone needs to splash strong (laughs) this week yes Yes.
0: thanks for joining us today come splash with us at shaleenbryan.com.